friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. We have a great show today. My co-host and TCA colleague Maureen Ferguson is with me for the entire show. We revisit with our dear friend, Father Mike Schmitz, today discussing his Still Topping the Charts podcast, Bible in a Year. If you haven't caught it, please do. And how best to share your faith with your friends and family, especially families that are on the brink of summer vacation. It's a great time to sit down with Father Mike and explore the Bible and our Catholic faith. But first, we are blessed to have Damon Owens with us. He's an international speaker and evangelist for over 20 years. He's also the founder and executive director of Joy to Be, following four years as the first executive director of the Theology of the Body Institute in Philadelphia. He served as chairman of the 2016 International Theology of the Body Congress. And as we are in this year of St. Joseph, we invited Damon to join us with a look at fatherhood, the highs, the lows, the blessings, and the battles, and all that we can learn from our faith in deepening our relationship with with our children. Damon is also a guru when it comes to the theology of the body, so we want to get info on that as well. Welcome to the show, Damon. Thank you. So good to be with you all. Well, it's really good of you to take the time. I know that you're a very busy man. You have a large family, not to mention <laughs> your ministry and all the wonderful work that you do. And it's, you know, part of the reason we thought of you is because of your large family. This is the year of St. Joseph, and you embrace your fatherhood with a lot of joy and a lot of peace, and that's how that's how we perceive it. And we wanted to have you tell us about that and transmit that to us uh, on Conversations with Consequences. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I'll share as, as openly as I always do. And it's really rooted in a, in, a, in a reverence and a real awe of what I get to do and, and you know, sometimes how poorly I do it. <laughs> and yet the grace that happens, you know, in uh, any way is part of the God's great gift to the family. Damon, I think you and your ministry first really came onto my radar screen during the pandemic when so many mm. of us were sort of, you know, withdrawing and hunkering down in our little cocoons. But mm. I feel like you were everywhere online and you launched all kinds of online retreats for married couples and I, I feel like I heard about you and your ministry from so many different circles of friends so can you describe to us some of these ministries and how you were able to kind of kick into high gear during the pandemic yeah it was interesting and we're still sort of parsing through what the shut-in and the pandemic has done ministry wise but God gave my wife Melanie and I we married for 28 years and we have eight children seven girls and a boy I say all boys except the first seven and uh, <laughs> the, uh, 
we, we have uh, two through adoption. And the work, I went into full-time ministry in 2002 after about eight years, part-time, still working engineering. And the ministry from the very beginning has always been focused on marriage, uh, family, parenting, natural family planning, and later on, again, adoption as it became a reality in our lives. And I think the pandemic really, uh, in God's timing, he had given us this vision of our current ministry, Joyful Ever After, really about uh, six weeks before the pandemic. Around January, I made the decision to leave and to, to form uh, Joyful Ever After as a very laser-focused approach to helping couples, as we say, get the marriage they want from the marriage that they have. And the timing, we literally incorporated on February 25th, and all the shut-ins happened You know, a couple of weeks later in March. We were, we were kind of left like, Lord, what are you asking of us? Where we had very high touch, very high intimacy uh, friendships that we were encouraging between couples as to help couples to work out their salvation. So it looked like it fly in the face that now we're shut in. But what happened is you're talking about is uh, several other speakers who've been around for a while really saw that we couldn't let the shut in stop our ministry work and somehow we had to pivot and I was part of a you know an honor to be part of a small group of of speakers who really went immediately and I mean like in March as our on uh, site events usually do 50 60 70 speaking events a year they all obviously were canceled and we, the virtual Catholic conferences really started to take shape. So I was honored to be, as you said, all over the place, only because we were trying to figure out how can we continue to serve when we're shut in this way. And I do thank God that, you know, as these doors were closed, there were windows that were open, and now we've got couples and individuals and really a whole culture that's now open to learning in ways that was not even popular before COVID. I'm talking about the, the online events. Damon, you had to be very nimble to make that shift, and, and it sounds like you made a very quickly. What Was it mostly a question of shifting gears in your head, or was it mostly a question of getting your arms around the IT difficulties and getting people on board with that kind of IT, which seemed very complicated at the beginning? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the, the, the tech was part of it, but I think the bigger was, was, was just I was getting into being authentic to our ministry, and not just doing events, just the sake of doing events, not to panic, because literally all of our income and revenue goes to zero, but really saying, okay, Lord, we know you're in how do we continue to, to give this ministry that you gave us? How do we, you know, maybe, is this a time to rest? Is this a time to pause? Is this a time to, to reflect? Or is this a time to, to reach people in ways that we couldn't reach before? We were asking really fundamental questions. And really the harder part was, what is the authentic way that we can communicate uh, building intimacy between couples within marriages and families? How can we build intimacy at a time where now we're physically separated? And I remember, I remember the first month we were immediately saying, you know, we, we couldn't stand, I hated that word, that phrase, social distancing. <laughs> yes. you know, my theology, theology, the body background, my TOB just said, oh, that is bad anthropology. <laughs> There's no social distancing. And, and to be precise, it was about physical distancing, right? It's about it's about the, the, the separation based on the virus, but a social separation really just, we knew that that could not sustain because it's it's against the nature of our, of our humanity. So we looked at these virtual events as ways of continuing some level of engagement. Praise be to God, the, the numbers of people that responded were amazing. Our marriage summit, we had 38,000 couples registered for the Catholic Marriage Summit 2020, which the content is still available. I was part of a Theology of the Body virtual conference, and they had 80,000 people 
register. These are not numbers that, you know, in 20 years, 25 years of ministry, you don't get those kind of numbers in the Catholic space. So, you know, God is God is uh, is still calling us to, to connect. That's right. And speaking of social distancing or not social distancing, I think a lot of people thought we might have a bit of a baby boom with everybody, you know, shut up at mm. home with their families. But of course, the opposite tragically has happened. Mm. It's been a bit of a baby bust. And we already had declining fertility rates in our country. And now that trend is accelerated. So how do you convey to people the joy of parenthood, of fatherhood, of the joys of a large family? How, how do you, what, what are some of your messages to people that are not otherwise inclined in this direction? Yeah, to be fair, over the years, we have focused directly on that issue uh, with the promotion of natural family planning, with the work that Melanie had done with adoption and just opening and telling stories, telling the story of, of the, the authentically, you know, what is what was the fears? How were those fears addressed? You know, what were the joys? What were the unexpected graces? And really just sort of putting a, a normalized, human, relatable connection, a face to each of those difficult issues. But I got to tell you, with Joyful Ever After, we've kind of gone in the other direction and said, you know, how do we strengthen the joy within marriage that allows the joy to drive that kind of fruitfulness? And the, the laser focus from the prior ministry, Joy TOB, uh, for marriage to, to family, now gave way to Joyful Ever After, which really is focusing on helping couples to, to really focus on their marriages. You know, one of the things related to fertility and related to uh, intimacy, there were some statistics that said, you know, self-professed Catholic couples report one out of four reported during COVID additional stress and strain in their marriage to the point of, you know, considering separation, real marital distress. So the sexual intimacy that, you know, would give rise to a, you know, fertility boom really at the heart of it was the trauma and the, the drama that was happening with couples whose schedules were disrupted, who were able to keep active during quote unquote normal times and avoid some of the deeper, more intimate, difficult conversations about about their marriage and their relationship. Now, shut in, we're face to face. And and these things can if, if we're not used and don't have the skills to address these issues, there's a lot of strife, there's a lot of drama, there's a lot of wounds and pain within these marriages. Damon, did you say only one in four? Well, the increase, so one out of four saying, and that's a huge number, uh, who are saying that the pandemic, it's the shut-in itself, has directly caused uh, strife within their marriages. I would have thought it was much higher, from my personal experience, Damon. <laughs> it could be. It very well could be. I mean, these surveys, I think we were shocked to see, I mean, there's always a, there's a certain level of distress in marriage that we deal with. That's why we're in ministry. But directly related to the shut-in, and again, these were active, practicing Catholics, not general population. That, that just what really caught my attention. For in our home, the problem was suddenly. Well, I mean, I've looked back at it because my husband and I are both very practicing Catholics, and and we did have a lot of trouble adjusting to being home all the time together. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of it was simply that each of us had had all our habits disrupted all at once. I kept thinking that you know human beings are such creatures of habit that as soon as things aren't clicking along the way we're used to, we get very distressed inside and we react badly. We 
we get anxious and and we don't know what to do with ourselves. Do you think that that was a large part of that? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think especially during that March, April time. Yes, frame, March, April. was new and, and then school year, if you had kids in school, I mean, homeschool, I mean, it just changed everything. But the enduring piece of that, I think, was wrapped up in all of the, the habits were coping mechanisms, mm-hmm. were coping things That's that, right. that kept us from really entering into, you know, crucial conversations to doing the work of our marriage. And the, and the tyranny of the immediate is what Pope Benedict used to call, you know, the talk about the dictatorship of relativism. He also talked about the tyranny of the immediate. And we get so active in so many urgent things that in those habits, some of them are just the routine and the disruption. But the other part is we've got crutches. We've got things that keep us from, from doing the harder work. And now when those are gone, uh, it's really, really hard to just jump right into these intimacy building needs if you don't have the skills. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and my co-hostess is on with me. Her name is Maureen Ferguson. We're talking to Damon Owens. He's an international speaker and evangelist for over 20 years and founder and executive director of Joy to Be and also Joyful Ever After, which is a relatively new project. He's telling us about a new ministry that has already been very, very successful. I like what you're saying, Damon, about the way that some of our our habits, our, our ways of leading our life become crutches in order to avoid real intimacy with our spouses. I definitely see that very actively. And even in my marriage and in marriages around me, I see um, the man who goes and plays golf, you know, all day Saturday, for instance, it's, sometimes it seems to me an escape, right, from that kind of intimacy that, that you could be fostering at home, but it's maybe a lot of trouble. Yeah, anything. This is the thing. And literally anything can be used as a, as a crutch. It could be food. It could be quiet. It could be music. You know, all things that, that are either neutral or even good. You know, we can use these things because it's not that they're bad that we do them. Golf is golf can be great. I'm not a golfer, but it can be great. But the real issue is, do we golf instead of being able to hold the gaze of our wife, mm-hmm. hold the gaze of our husband, to sit in and say, I'm really hurt by what you said to me. And, you know, this, this, this is what I heard when you, when you say this. I, how, how did you expect me to respond to this, honestly, when you say it this way? The real conflict, I'm, I'm talking very, very personal conflict. And this is where we start getting to things like my friend, Dr. Bob Schutz, down at the John Paul II Healing Center, talks about the anatomy of a wound, the anatomy of a wound, and that there's a trauma, there's a belief that we assign to that trauma, and then there is a, a vow that we make to make sure that the trauma never happens again, and then we bury it so deep into our emotional brain that we don't even think it through, it, it becomes a reaction, and we build these up from the moment we're, we're young all the way through our marriages, and we're almost on autopilot when it comes to these emotional responses, and now when the husband and the wife start living together, and it is conflict, and the conflict is not bad, the conflict is, is literally the purification that God wants for us as we work out our holiness. But we use things like golf and food and quiet and noise to avoid that hard work of unpacking these personal wounds that the person you pledged your life to is here to help you work out. This is what God has created with this this crazy idea of marriage, this crazy reality that's built into our bones and our body and our psyche. It's built into our spirit, our spiritual soul, that the union of persons creates a, a reality that cannot exist 
exist in isolation. Two becoming one flesh creates a, a third that could never exist without the other. It's, it's, it's divine. And yet if we break away from the communion for an isolation, we cannot have communion. So it really becomes an either or instead of a both and. You know, Damon, you talk about how marriage is such a crazy project in so many ways to yeah. tie yourself to this person who in many ways you kind of hardly even know really and to yeah. tie that person to you for life, you know, to be tied together for life. And I have a son who's engaged and it's so beautiful to see this, you know, beautiful, pure love between him and his fiance. They're both 22 years old. But at the same time, I sort of think back to how little my husband and I really knew each other and just how I think God sort of sprinkles this, you know, young love of pixie dust because why else would we kind of jump off a cliff together for the rest of our lives? But circling back, to the baby bust that we're experiencing in our culture mm-hmm. today. And this, it's really a rejection of life and of love that people are refusing children. And my husband and I do marriage preparation talks and we actually do the natural family planning talk. So I'm yeah. wondering how you try to reach young couples on this particular area of encouraging them about the joys of parenthood. Yeah, oh, sounds so much in common. I mean, we, we're, we're literally right now with my oldest daughter who's expecting, uh, we've been married a year and a half and expecting our first grandchild. And the same thing is watching them in their young love at, at such a maturity, the way they communicate to each other. Even that becomes uh, life building for Melanie and me as the parents. And I think that is part of the question, the equation of what in this generation is uh, an impediment? What's keeping them from seeing the, the gift of having children as opposed to just the burden? Why is there the, the lack of joy and support? And I think the, the answer, there's lots of different answers, to be honest with you, but most of them are basically can be under the, the umbrella of the culture, the cultural understanding of marriage, of the human person. There are competing theologies. There are competing anthropologies, the meaning of the man. There are competing uh, definitions of marriage, as we've seen, you know, legally since uh, 2015. So what we've got here is an idea of couples coming together that really have to make a choice. They have to deliberately choose to understand themselves through the lens of God and his church, or to start compromising with the culture's understanding of who they are. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What is marriage? Why would I choose marriage? And if I choose marriage, am I choosing it for the reasons that God created it? Or am I choosing it for the reasons that the culture will accept it? So as much as people want to deny it, we are we are still in a cultural battle here for the minds and the hearts of, of the next generation. And the mm. couples that you and I see in marriage preparation, these are couples that are still coming to the church for marriage. And they're still letting their love do crazy things like pledge themselves to each other for the rest of their lives because it's it's still accepted by the culture. But in order to have a lifelong, joy-filled marriage, the fullness of it, we simply cannot compromise with the culture. The culture itself is, is driving us to such an irreconcilable understanding of who we are as persons that it's not compatible. It is utterly incompatible with what it takes to build marriage. And that's that's sort of the conversion that with the joyful ever after, we want to get to the hearts and minds of these couples, not through ideas and concepts that do need to be taught. Catechesis is huge, but their hearts have not been grabbed. They're, they're not part of a, a community of friends where the culture among that friendship is driving them to go deeper and deeper 
deeper into God's plan for joyful marriage. So the heart of joyful ever after in our approach is very much building these quads, you know, three, four couples who journey together in intentional friendship and confidence so that you're not isolated. You're not alone. You're not having to search out to find someone who is, you know, a peer, who's someone who is older than you, married longer, who can who can teach you through word and deed, or younger couples, where now you can, even as a young, young couple, can be in the position of teaching. So the teaching and learning is this breathing, like inhaling and exhaling, and you can't have one without the other. So we have to make real cultural headway by deliberately and intentionally building the culture that allows marriage and couples to flourish. Mm. And I think that mentoring of older couples and younger couples, I think that is so important. It's been so helpful to me to have couples who are, you know, just a little bit older than us. Their kids are older than ours to um, yeah. just to help guide us. Yes. You know, even sort of getting to the problem and why do young people have, why is it such a challenge to have a mentality of openness to life? And I've noticed that even in our Catholic culture, sometimes the language which is problematic. Like, I don't even like the term natural family planning because I feel like that plays into the problem that we have to have control over all of these things. And, you know, I think the the new term fertility awareness is probably a better term. You know, we always make the point in our, it's still called the natural family planning talk, but we always make the point that, you know what? You don't have to plan out your life. Sometimes the best things in life are surprises, you know? And I think in our culture, everything is planned scheduled and and it's that sense of control and so the bigger picture that it sounds like you're talking about of you can trust in God for these things and anyway what, what yeah. do you think about that yeah no I think you're on and we have such a great great conversation we're, we're of the same mind here and I think here's the challenge too is that what natural family planning in and of itself is a culture shock to the couples so we have to keep keep our, our reverence and honor that the idea that the body is ordered and that you can understand how how the body works and how that your joint fertility as a husband and a wife, that there really is only a 12 to 24 hour period where, where conception can occur over every menstrual cycle. And you can understand the bounds of when that fertile window begins and the five to seven days of when that fertile window ends. So that whole idea, that whole, which is natural to us in terms of understanding, is radically opposed to a culture of real fundamental control. So I think there's something that's built into natural family planning that, that may sound what's off-putting to us in the culture is actually the one thing that's attractive to them to get them out of the other culture. And the, the other issue is that once we're yeah, learning, you know, the learn, when we're learning natural family planning, you know how hard it is in the beginning because you're thinking, I've got to have more control. I have no control. I'm sitting here waiting for some sign and symptom to show up on this chart and, and, and maybe it doesn't happen. Maybe it does. It's that wrestling of the heart that says, no, I am actually not in control, but I am not more than an observer. I am a steward of this sexual power. And how do I regain good stewardship. First of all, you can't do it without knowledge. And what you can't know, you can't live. And you've got to live it with a certain piece. It's a school. It very much is a school that, that natural frame planning can do. The question is, how do we appeal to the, the, the more contraceptive culture that seeks to fully control fertility and love and marriage and eternity, all these things, that's a lie by giving these, these couples an exposure and an encounter with trust with knowledge that says this is how God created you and this is what he's asking you to do with this power and it's more than just a course 
It's more than just choosing to achieve or postpone. It has to be part of a, a culture where you learn from the older couples. Like, hey, just relax, just relax. God's in control here. And you're able to look at a younger couple and say, man, we had the same angst that you have, and here's what we've learned. And to be with a peer and to say, are we the only ones crazy? Are we seeing this? So that whole cultural building is the formation of persons that... Again, Pope Benedict speaks about the John Paul II wrote the entire theology of the body to remind us of, but we still need something very practical, a praxis, a practice. And natural family planning allows that within, you know, this kind of strong culture. So I agree with you, but I think we have some powerful tools here to, to convert and to awaken young couples. Earlier, Damon, you said something that struck me very much. You said that joy leads to children, that it's the joy yeah. in marriage that allows uh, families to be generous when it comes to children. And, yeah. and and I think it ties in with what you're saying, that it allows us, when we're joyful in our marriages, to accept these surprising children sometimes as joyful additions to a joyful household. I can just unpack that because that is so, it just delights me to talk about this because you have to understand joy. And I really love your listeners to, to acknowledge we're not talking merely happiness or circumstances mm -hmm. or occasion. That's beautiful. That's emotional. It's utterly dependent on situation. When you and I are talking about joy, we're talking about something on a whole other level. Joy is relational. So the joy of marriage is about deepening our relationship with one another and our couple relationship with God. So the deepening of the relationship is what brings the joy. Joy is the fruit of love. So the reason that we can be joyful about children is because we have deepened our trust that our marriages are under the aegis of love, of God himself. So why would we be afraid? Why would we be fearful about you know being able to, to raise our children for 18 years and whatever millions of dollars the culture says each child costs? All that stuff is, is building up fear, and fear comes from separation and isolation, whereas joy is the fruit of love and communion. So we're dealing with the reality that says when we are deeply connected with God, fear and faith cannot exist in the body at the same time. And that's why we say we want more love, we want more joy, we want more, Lord, we trust you. And, and that's, that's the connection that we have to restore. Damon, just briefly, we only have a minute left, but you're a proud mm -hmm. father of eight children, as we've noted, and Father's Day is coming towards us. Can you briefly share with us what might be some practical advice for parents and fathers in particular that may be struggling to be their children's spiritual father as well as their dads? Yeah, I just know you are not alone. I'm struggling with this even as I'm learning and teaching and growing and you know my delight in my children gets gets muted by my frustration with them and, and just irritation and all the, the things that, that are still in me that, that want to draw in so I encourage my, my men my fathers my husbands uh, to persevere that it's worth pressing through that you will not be laid empty by giving more and more and there are we need each other we need encouragement from one another to be able to to lift us up when we're when we're down and we feel like we can't give anymore really get at the get at the areas that really really irritate us the most and for me it's i found that simple powerful truth of affection of just putting a hand on my daughter of just randomly grabbing and hugging or giving a kiss you know things that i didn't grow up with in particular and they're not super hard and painful i just don't think about them but being very intentional about you know, affection and, and and the touching is such a peacemaker it, it calms you and it, it draws into uh draw your, your children into you so just 
persevere and look for good community. Damon, it's such a delight to talk to you. The truths that you say, with, with they're so convincing and they're really hopeful. Hopeful for all of us that are married or hoping to be married or watching our children get married and how much joy that that will bring us. So thank you, uh, Damon. Can you tell our listeners how they can learn more about your ministry? I'd be honored. Joyful Ever After. Joyfuleverafter.org is our organization. You can also just go to Got Joy, G-O-T-J-O-Y, gotjoy.org. We've got some exciting things coming up this summer, and I'd love to share them with your listeners. Thank you so much, Damon. Thank Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And for the rest of the show, my colleague and good friend at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson, is joining me. We are very happy and very blessed to have Father Mike Schmitz with us. He's the Director of Youth and Young Adult Ministries in the Diocese of Duluth, Minnesota. Um, You don't have to be in Duluth, Minnesota to have heard of Father Mike Schmitz. Many, many people know him from his online homilies, his books. Just last year, he wrote a book called How to Make Great Decisions. What a wonderful title and thought. His podcast, which is very popular at the Ferguson household, Maureen was telling me, super popular podcast with all her kids. And he's also speaking at the Seek conference this year. We want to talk to him about all those facets of his character and of his work. We thank him very much for being here. Thank you, Father Schmidt. Absolutely. Thank you for hosting me. Father, I know you, you know, our time isn't endless and we want to talk to you about a lot of things, but (laughs) I really enjoyed, I have a copy of your book, How to Make Great Decisions, and I was leafing through it. I'm going to hand it to at least four of my children. When I'm done with it. That's great. Um, and there are three questions that you suggested we ask ourselves, and they really rang uh, true for me, and they make a lot of sense. Am I in a state of grace? Am I performing my daily duties? And did I pray today? How did you come to focus um, making great decisions on these three particular questions? I think that's a really great question because I, I can't remember. I think what it was was uh, a matter of kind of just doing some of the, the logic of the spiritual life and that logic of the spiritual life being primarily by virtue of our baptism, we're brought into, we have, we, we receive God's sanctifying grace. And so we're brought into a unique relationship with the Lord as made into his sons and daughters and living in covenantal relationship with him. I mean, this is big, these are big fancy theological words, which I know you get, and I'm sure, I'm sure your listeners will understand as well. But that sense of like, okay, wait, so I've been brought into this new kind of relationship with God, but I also it's possible for me to wound or break that relationship, to severely mortally damage that relationship by mortal sin. And so first question I need to ask is, okay, is that is that relationship intact or have I mortally wounded, wounded it? And if so, I need to get in a state of grace. So I need to go to confession. The second piece being, I also know that so many of the saints have talked about, and great spiritual writers have talked about the key for holiness is not doing miracles. The key of holiness is not doing incredible penances or, or, or great works. The key of holiness is, am I doing God's will? And so the next question would be, am I doing my daily duties? Because where do we find our daily duties? Well, or where, sorry, where do we find God's will? We find God's will in doing ordinary things that we've committed to, that our vocation demands of us, or that our, those people we're responsible for asked of us or asked of us or that we've committed to so that second piece being like okay am i doing that am i on a basic level just doing god's will for my 
day to day. And then thirdly, you know, especially when it comes to the reality that God continues to speak with us, he's in, if we're in communion with them, right, in covenantal relationship with him, and we're striving after holiness, uh, if he wants me to turn to the left or turn to the right or stop or slow down or keep moving forward, then I need to be intentionally listening to his voice. Um, yes, of course, he can speak to us regardless, even if we're trying not to listen, he can do that. But it would make the most sense that we would be listening and that means praying. And so they, it kind of seemed like these are the these really three key but incredibly simple and necessary things that we need to be doing if we're going to be pursuing holiness and being the people that God has created and redeemed us to be. Father Mike, it's such an incredible treat for us to have you on. I first heard about you from my teenage children who used to come home from their high school <laughs> youth group and they would say, Mom, you got to see a video of Father Mike's on all kinds of topics. So at the beginning of the new year, they told me about your podcast. And so we've been yeah. listening to your new podcast. Sometimes we do it during dinner, sometimes after dinner. And your new podcast is Topping the Charts even the secular yeah. church, which is unbelievable. And we would love to know, what was your inspiration in creating the Bible in a Year podcast? Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Is it too late to get in on it if you didn't start at the new year? And one of the questions my kids have for you, because they were incredulous that we were going to be able to have you on our show today, <laughs> they want to know, does your voice get tired reading the whole Bible to us? <laughs> That is awesome. Well, thank you. First, yeah, I, we did not anticipate, I did not anticipate that it would, the response would be what it has been. And I'm so grateful for it. I had, like most people, you know, over the course of the last year, you know, starting last February, March, I, not even starting last February, March, I find myself taking in most of my information through my ears. I love reading, but I also uh, fall asleep because I'm an old, becoming older and older and tireder and tireder as the days go on. And so I love reading, but I have to listen in order to get stuff, you know, or else I just fall asleep. I need to like walk and listen to a book or walk and listen to a podcast or drive and listen to something. And you can't afford to fall asleep then. So I thought, well, I take in so many voices throughout the course of the day, throughout the course of like just at all times. And I found myself not only taking in all these voices, and some of these voices were like wise people I think that I look up to and I really appreciate their insight, I found myself still getting distracted by those voices and still getting distressed by those voices. I mean, even if they had wise things to say, I didn't always find that they um, had the view of the worldview of Christ and the and the, the, that mind of Christ that, that St. Paul implores us to, to take up. Up, you know, to be transformed by the, uh, have our thoughts, have our thoughts be renewed, right, by by Christ. So I thought, you know, when I encounter God's word, when I hear the Bible, because I have like, you know, I bought a New Testament dramatized version, so I listen to that, and I think when I walked away from that, I always had the sense of, okay, this is true, this is good, this is beautiful, and I'm not distracted and I'm not distressed. And I thought it would be incredible to be able to go through the whole Bible, like from start to finish, uh, and let people just press play and let it kind of just shape their minds and shape their worldview and shape their heart. And so I proposed it to Ascension and said, "Would you? what do you think about doing this podcast? And they were really excited because apparently years ago, someone had the idea, but they didn't know who to ask or when they were going to do it. And so I said, well, how about now? And you don't have to, it doesn't have to be me, but I would love to. That started the, the ball rolling. The last two things I just want to offer is this is kind of a unique podcast or a unique Bible in a year because there's a ton of go through the Bible in 365 days out there. I mean, that's when we first did it. I said, just, hey, let's download one of those templates and follow that. And they said, well, you know, we also published this thing called the Great Adventure Bible Timeline created by Jeff Cavins. Why don't we base our 
template or our the way we proceed throughout the course of the year off of that. So we have the the narrative books that tell the coherent story from the very beginning to the very end. And then we can situate those other books in their context, right? So it was just it's such a it was brilliant. A bunch of the people at Ascension, they crafted it, they created it, and they put it in the right in the right places. And that that's been such a gift. And lastly, you asked that what if people haven't started yet? Is it too late? Absolutely not, because if you've ever listened to one of the even one of the episodes, you note that I don't say today is, you know, February 23rd. I say today is day 30. Um, and so that means that even if you miss a day, miss a week, if you, even if you start at the beginning of April or even at the end of the year, your day one is your day one. Okay, your day 45 is day 45. And I love that because it means that even if you fail at being perfect, which I think all of us do, you don't have to quit. You just, okay, now this is my new day 45. That's today. And that's another thing is like hearing all of the stories and not just kind of the, the stories we heard when we were kids or even from the lectionary, we get to hear like, wow, this is a messier story than mm-hmm. I, I seem to have picked up over the course of these years. Indeed, Father, and not always G-rated. We discovered we had to pause oh, yeah, one time with our 10-year-old also at the table. We did have to pause one of the episodes. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> but, but truly, the mm-hmm. Old Testament has always been so difficult for me to decipher. So it is so helpful the way you put things into context. And, you know, I'm curious, what is your target audience? Because you, of course, are so dedicated to youth ministry, but I have gotten so much out of this. So did you plan this as part of your youth ministry or is this sort of for everybody? Maybe I should have thought of that. I didn't. I thought, I know people, I don't, care how old they are when i was um so we we put on a junior high retreat every year or junior high camp every year and every year we invite the junior high students from sixth grade seventh grade eighth grade i say read your bible every day 10 minutes a day that's it just you know just and it can it'll change your life and i have a nephew who like took up that challenge he started reading the bible every day at least 10 minutes a day without fail for the next probably i want to say five four or five years and (laughs) So it's, but then you get lost, right? So here he is as a, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grader reading the Bible and being like, okay, so I guess I kind of read the story about so and so. I don't know what to make sense of it. But I also know people who are far older than me who are saying, like, I just don't know the Bible. Like, I feel like I should. I'm 60 years old and I'd be going to Mass, but I don't know the Bible. And I've tried reading it, I tried reading it, and I can't get through it. And then everyone in between. And so my thought was, if you make this as easy as possible, meaning it's at most, I think that. There might be a couple episodes that up pushed like the 30 minute mark because there's some longer readings and like, oh, there's more complex stuff going on, but make it easy as possible. So kind of short. Secondly, all you have to do is press play and listen. And then thirdly, you have some kind of guidance. And that's what I think hopefully you're alluding to is like that sense of like someone at the end is going to say, okay, here's what you just heard. Here's one way we can make sense out of it. I'm not, I'm not claiming that I know uh, here. I, I always get a little distracted or bothered when people say, what Jesus meant here was this. And I'm like, well, I don't know if that's exact all that he meant. I think one of the things Jesus could have meant was this, but uh, I don't necessarily like claiming this is what this means and it only means this. So I just try to provide a little bit of guidance at the end of every episode to just kind of once again remind us, here's where we're at. Here's what just happened. Here's what it might mean. Father Mike, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind doing a quick little lightning round of questions with me because, as I said, my kids were so excited to hear that you were coming on our show. And I asked them, what questions do you think I should ask Father Mike? One, one of 
of them even checked with a few of her friends to say, what questions should my mom ask? So here are some of their questions. Who is your confirmation saint and why? My confirmation saint is St. Francis Xavier. Ah. And when I chose he chose him. I had read a bunch about him, and I loved two things. Two things stuck out in particular. One is that I had read that he was a track star at the University of Paris before his big conversion, and I was like, "Yeah, I want to be a track star." I don't. It doesn't have to be Paris, but <laughs> I want to be a track star. And the second is because he's the patron saint of missionaries. And ever since I was in high school, I wanted to be a missionary. And uh, so those are the those are the two main reasons why I chose Francis Xavier. Okay, great. So next question: What's your favorite part of being a priest? Um, that is, that's a really good question. And, um, ultimate, oh gosh, yeah, it's such a hard question to answer though. So because, many favorite parts. Um, there are so many favorite parts. Yeah. Not because it's hard because there's no favorite parts. No, it's, it's hard because it's, 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 if I were to say one, I would think, but also this other thing. So for example, I would say, you know, offering up the mass is, um, it's, it's the greatest honor, I think anyone could ever be asked to do uh, at the same time meeting people in the second reconciliation and uh, extending to them the reconciliation and restoration of jesus christ is what an incredible honor and humbling thing to do also being able to teach people about the lord and just like let that be like this is the whole sum of your life is being able to 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 do that is like how much greater is that and then i mean i even love things like marriage prep uh just i get to be mm-hmm. in these these young couples lives in a in a critical critical moment and um try to offer uh, some kind of guidance and some kind of uh help that will hopefully s- get them on the right trajectory for the rest of their lives and for their kids lives and grandkids and just like this what a privileged place Mm-hmm. So there's too many things to say there's one. Okay, well, those are all um, so beautiful. Um, okay, next, how do you encourage your friends in the faith without being preachy or annoying? Good question. I think that, um, well, from the hip here, I would say it all depends on uh, what kind of relationship you have with your friends. And uh, one of the things that I find is that I Originally or initially, in, especially in high school, I just went there and, and like just talking about here's what I think is true and here's what I think is right and here's what I believe about God and kind of stuff. And, and I wouldn't have asked them for permission. And I think that one of the things that we get when it comes to, I think we, we, we as Catholics might get a little too gun shy when it comes to sharing our faith. But I think that might be because if we get it in our hearts to start sharing our faith, we do it without, again, asking the permission of the people that we want to share it with. Um, and so then when someone does act, ask us like, hey, what do you believe? And, or or I'm going through this really rough time and how do you make sense of this that we're so gun shy about like, oh, I need to dance around this. I'm not willing to like really, really share the truth of what I believe and the goodness of what I believe that we then even water that down. I've seen so many people, even priests, religious bishops, who when they get asked the direct question of like, why Jesus have, it seems like they've been so gun shy about like just saying because he is who he says he is because he is truly God and he has died for our sins and he's risen from the dead because we often I think, uh, start by sharing our faith with people who have not yet given us permission to have that kind of conversation with them. Does that make sense? Yeah, you have to have that. The hearts have to be open to each other, right? Before you can you can offer that that beautiful treasure. Yeah, and there's and there's a there's a level of respect I think that I had to learn in the sense of like I thought, of course I'm respecting you. I'm telling you, I I don't respect you. I love you. That's why I'm telling you this uh, this truth about you know the faith and. 
but someone could say, yeah, but I never like asked you to, or I never gave you permission to. And so now what it's seen, yeah, I, I, this quote, a friend said once, um, unasked for advice is always criticism. And I thought, Oh, hmm. that's oh, I, whether that's, that's true good. or not is one thing, but it feels like it. <laughs> unasked for advice is always criticism. I'm just trying to help you. Like, well, uh, I haven't yet looked for help from you, so maybe wait until I look for help. I use that. Yeah. So. Well, that was that was great advice, Father, and we asked for it, so it's not criticism. <laughs> <There> it <is>. Yes. <laughs> well, Father, we only have about a minute and a half left, but I we don't want you to go without talking about the fact that you will be sharing your message uh, this year at the Focus Seek 2021 conference, uh, where there will be many young yes. adults. I'm actually not sure if it's going to be in person or virtual. I'm assuming virtual because of everything that's going on. So, yeah, normally normally the C conference, I think the last time we had it two years ago, um, had roughly like 13, 15,000, somewhere in there. Uh, in person, it was amazing, mm -hmm. incredible. Uh, this year, because of COVID, um, there is this mix. So the mix is we have 22,000 people registered so far. It's the largest ever focus event. Um, with not just college students participating, but also parishes participating. Because normally this is for college students, or it's at least specifically sponsored by the uh, Fellowship of Catholic University Students, which is a college evangelistic uh, ministry, so good discipleship ministry. Um, and because it's online, uh, people are saying, like, if you have a group in your parish, be part of this, tune in. So what we're doing is, for our campus, we are going to a location, so we're gonna we're gonna be in person with each other. Uh, we're keeping all the distancing and all those kinds of regulations in, intact, but we're going away. So we're putting on this retreat for our local community, and a number of par parishes, a number of campuses are doing the same thing. Um, while the talks and the other uh, events are being streamed from various locations, so. As an example, I'll be giving one of the talks on Saturday night, and so I'll be with our students, and they're going to stream that talk from where, from where we are to the rest of the sites around the country, around the world. Um, and so if someone's interested, it's really incredible. Um, there's a worldwide prayer vigil on Saturday, February 6th, uh, and there'll be thousands of people coming together asking God for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for healing today's culture of death, for our church, uh, evangelization. And if you're interested, you can go to seek.focus.org uh, because, yeah, any anyone or any group of people can still participate. You can still register to be part of this. It starts Thursday night, it's Friday night, and then all day Saturday and Sunday morning. Oh, that sounds fabulous, Father, and I'm glad that you have been able to uh, be so um, inventive and, and make it happen, uh, even even oh, with all the, so all the challenges. Excited. Well, thank you, Father. It's yeah. been wonderful to have you. At, 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 you're a wonderful voice in, in these dark times. I, I can see that you're having a tremendous impact, and, and we'll pray for success at the at the SEEK conference. And for more information on Father Schmidt's work, you can check out bulldogcatholic.org. Thank you so much, Father. Thank you. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us tomorrow in Corpus Christi, the feast of the body and blood of the Lord. In some ways, it's the most important conversation we'll have. Jesus takes bread and says to the apostles and to us, Take it, this is my body. Then he takes wine and a chalice and says, This is my blood of the covenant which will be shed for many. These words would have been shocking to the apostles on Holy Thursday in the upper room. Their wonder should never wear off of us either. 
Do you believe Jesus when he says, this is my body and this is the chalice of my blood? If we do, his words should change us. They should blow up our earthly priorities. That's the impact they had on me when I was a college freshman. It was away on campus, living on my own for the first time. I was fortunate to have grown up in a very faithful Catholic family. I had always gone to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days. and was very involved in my hometown parish, working there for five years. From the time I was four, I had believed in what the Church calls the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist and had never disbelieved the truth that after the words of consecration, there's only Jesus and the appearances of bread and wine. But the consequences of the reality of the Eucharistic Jesus hadn't really struck me. But that September day in 1988, I asked myself, if it's really Jesus, the eternal Son of God in the Holy Eucharist, is there anything more important that I could be doing on a Monday than receiving him in Holy Communion? Is there anything more important on a Tuesday or Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday? I recognized that the clear answer to that question was that there was nothing more important in the whole world than receiving God inside. And from that day, September 24th, 1988 until today, 11,943 days later, I have, by the grace of God, never gone one day without Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. St. Thomas Aquinas' words from his famous Eucharistic hymn, the Panis Angelicus, have always summed up my attitude of gratitude. We sing there, O res mirabilis, manducat dominum, pauper et servus humilis. What a mind-blowing reality. A poor and humble servant eats the Lord. That's what Jesus in the Eucharist makes possible. We creatures eat our Creator. We sinners consume our Savior. We lovers become one flesh with the Beloved. There has to be consequences to the Eucharist, to this conversation Jesus has with us each day at Mass. The Church teaches that Jesus in the Eucharist is meant to be the source and the summit of the Christian life, the source or starting point from which everything flows, and the summit, the goal, toward which everything goes. Jesus in the Eucharist is meant to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of our whole life. We're supposed to draw our life from Jesus in the Eucharist. Let's get practical about five different ways. First, we should make Sunday Mass by far the biggest priority of our week. There's the famous story of the martyrs of Abitin, Tunisia, from 304. They were told by the Roman prefect that if they assembled on Sunday morning for Mass, they would be arrested and summarily executed. They thanked him for the notice. But then still, Sunday morning, all 49 Christians in the town came together. When the flabbergasted prefect asked them why they didn't heed his warning, one of them, Emeritus, simply said, Sine Dominico non possimus. Without the Lord on Sunday, we cannot live. Especially in an age in which even before COVID, many Catholics treated missing Sunday Mass as no big deal. And after COVID, many have not yet returned to church. We need a healthy kick in the pants of the mystical body, reminding us of what's really going on. We have the awesome privilege to receive the creator of the universe, the savior of the world within us. How can we ever pass up that gift of gifts? Second, we should prepare for Sunday Mass. At the beginning of tomorrow's gospel, the apostles asked Jesus, where do you want us to go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? They wanted, they needed to prepare for what they thought was just going to be a reenactment of the Passover rite. When Moses and the Jewish people ate unleavened bread, killed an unblemished lamb, consumed it and wiped its blood on the doorpost on the night God would set them free from Pharaoh and from Egypt. Little did they know that Jesus was going to inaugurate that night the new and eternal covenant 
covenant and have us eat him as the Lamb of God and drink his blood as he himself enters through the door of our life to make us his abode. And if they needed to prepare for the old Passover in the meticulous way Jesus instructed, how much more do we need to be prepared for something infinitely more awesome? How do we prepare? We prepare first by longing for Jesus, something we can do by spiritual communions, telling the Lord in prayer how much we hunger to receive him. We prepare second by cleaning and getting things in order, which is what happens when we make a good confession. We prepare third by looking ahead to the Mass and tilling the soil of our soul so that we might receive the seeds God wants to plant within. That's what we're doing now as we prepare for the Gospel. But preparation for Sunday Mass is the second way we make our faith in the Eucharist practical. The third way is that we should try to make time to come to adore Jesus, to spend time with Him, to pray. If we really believe what the Church professes, that the Eucharist is Jesus, then how incredible is it that we have the time to be with Him? The more we adore Jesus outside of Mass, the more we will adore Him in Mass. And adoring love is the only fitting way to receive Jesus. What a great movement of the Holy Spirit is happening in the Church, despite all of the challenges the Church faces, that so many parishes are instituting periods of Eucharistic adoration, including 24-7 perpetual adoration. It's no surprise that parishes that keep Jesus in the center in this way thrive. They're the ones that are producing many vocations to the priesthood and religious life. They're the ones that are growing in size. They're the ones in which the parishioners are growing and growing fast on the inside. Wouldn't it be great if your parish had perpetual adoration? Wouldn't it be great if you helped it get off the ground? Fourth, I'd like to urge you to think about what happened to me as an 18-year-old college freshman. Same question can be asked to you. Is there anything more important you could be doing any day of your life than receiving God inside? Now, it may not be possible for you to go to Mass every day because of familial or work obligations, or because, sadly, there are not enough priests near you to offer Mass every day. But a Catholic who knows and loves Jesus in the Holy Eucharist should have a ravenous hunger to want to receive Him each day. The beautiful thing about daily Mass is that no one goes out of obligation. Everyone is there out of love. That's the adequate response to the amazing love of Jesus in loving us so much that he has become the food of our soul and whole Christian life. Lastly, especially in Corpus Christi, our gratitude for Jesus in the Eucharist spurs us to want to do something extravagant for him. Throughout the centuries, Christians have had Eucharistic processions on this feast, taking Jesus out into the streets, showing our love for him and letting our faith overflow. One of the beautiful things that happened during the pandemic in many places is that priests in the back of pickup trucks drove the streets of their parishes in procession, blessing the houses of parishioners and making sure that if people were prevented from coming to church, Jesus would at least come to bless and visit them. Now that the worst of the pandemic is over, how beautiful it would be to go out with Jesus into those same streets. In the sequence hymn he wrote for the first Corpus Christi celebration in 1264, St. Thomas Aquinas said, Quantem potes tantum aude, a beautiful phrase that means, dare to do all you can. St. Thomas was summoning us to pull out all the stops and showing our appreciation to Jesus for this great gift. Corpus Christi processions are one way to do it. Holy hours on Corpus Christi are another. Making a commitment to center one's whole life on Jesus in the Eucharist is probably the most fitting of all. Take and eat. Take and drink. These words of Jesus in tomorrow's gospel are repeated every day on the altar of our parishes. 
by them, Jesus is inviting us to enter into a dialogue with him, not just of words, but of lives. He wants us to become more and more like him whom we consume. Let us ask for the grace to make that conversation that echoes each day in our churches the most consequential conversation of our life. God bless you all.